Hello, and welcome to Rounds with Relias, the podcast for healthcare professionals. I'm your host, Jesse Safran. Today's topic is pediatric emergency care, an area of healthcare that holds many lessons when it comes to risk management, protecting patients while limiting malpractice liability, complying with regulations, and staying up to date on the latest medical science is an immense challenge, even for seasoned physicians. To give us a better understanding of these issues, we are joined today by Dr. Ann Dietrich, who is board certified in pediatrics and pediatric emergency medicine and has practiced for more than 30 years. She currently is a professor at Ohio University Heritage College of Medicine and serves as physician editor for pediatric emergency medicine reports and trauma reports, both of which are Relias Media publications. Dr. Dietrich, thank you for joining us. Thank you so very much for having me. In your view, what is the biggest risk management-related issue in pediatric emergency care today? I think it would surprise most people to learn that the biggest issue or the biggest risk management-related issue is actually going to be um, the way that a family feels that your patient-physician interaction goes. Um, There's been some excellent research that's been done recently, especially over the last few years, that has identified that that patient-physician communication is actually a main driver for um, the way the patient or family may react afterwards, especially if there's a bad outcome and something doesn't go well. So say, for instance, um, you have a family that presents with abdominal pain. If that family feels that you're not listening to them or they have concerns that you're not addressing and then the child, you discharge the child um, with a very good set of discharge instructions, but the child comes back with a ruptured appendicitis, that family is very likely, if their first encounter wasn't good, to seek legal advice and to possibly involve you, the clinician, in a malpractice adventure. So how should physicians convey that concern for the family and the child? Are there strategies to sort of get them on board and help them feel like you're on their side? There are a number of strategies that have been published and a number of strategies that I think just make good common sense. So you want to always make sure that the family feels you are present in the moment so that you're there and you're listening to them. So you want to make sure that you stop, you sit down, make sure you introduce yourself, especially in a teaching facility with so many different clinicians coming in and out. The family can get confused or hear the names but not register. So you want to make sure if you're the attending physician or you're the resident that the family knows specifically who you are. Um, And then the other thing that really is very, very simple, but all of us value our time. Everybody's busy. People don't want to feel that their time's not valued. So particularly on busy days or particularly busy nights, then what you might start out with is, I know your time is valuable, and I want to thank you so very much for waiting, and I'm here now to hear what you're concerned about, so that the family feels you've pulled them in and that you're engaging them and you specifically care about their family and their child. Make sure that you sit down. Um, A lot of times when you're really busy and it's something that you're hoping is just really, really simple, you can keep pretty close to the door to make the fast exit so that you come in, you kind of get done what you need. If you can take an extra 15 to 20 seconds to go and sit down, make sure you're making direct eye contact, those things are also seen by families as very, very valuable and make sure that you do a very careful history and physical examination. In no situation is it ever not worth the extra five to ten minutes to get a good history or confirm the history you've been told, and then do a complete physical exam and make sure that it corresponds with what you've been told or corresponds with what you're expecting to find. Dr. Dietrich, can you talk for a little bit about some of the conditions and presentations that can lead to liability issues for practitioners? I know you mentioned abdominal pain earlier. Can you use that as an example for our listeners? 
Yeah, since we started with abdominal pain, that's a, a really good topic to go on. And it's a very high area of liability for clinicians, as we all know. Um, I think the first thing is that it's an area of vulnerability. So whenever you hear a child is crying, fussy, or the child has a chief complaint of abdominal pain, you should put some special things into the back of your mind that you're going to make sure that you're careful, that you're attentive, and that afterwards you're going to be also very careful with your documentations. So make sure, in addition to what you usually get, you know, your usual information with the onset of the illness, associated symptoms, but also make sure you get the pattern and severity. Um, I remember one night I had a um, teenage boy, and it was a really busy night shift, and he came in with abdominal pain, but he was a really nice kid. His dad was lovely. He was smiling. I went in, you know, did the abdominal exam. Wasn't that impressive? Um, but they stayed, and, you know, we did the urine test, just some simple screens, and I went back, and at 7 a.m. when my partner showed up, I was so grateful to see him um, because I was exhausted, and we had a couple of bad scenarios on the critical care side. And I said to him, you know what? I said, I don't think I was attentive to this teenage boy as much as I should have been. And he looked at me and he goes, a teenage boy in the emergency department all night with his dad? He goes, he must have something wrong with him. And I said, can you please go back in and just you know, help me out here. And so I went and told the, introduced him to the parents and I left. And um, thank goodness for my most excellent partner. He was an appendicitis and non-ruptured, went to the operating room. But I was very grateful for the fact that um, my partner was fresh and was attentive and paid significant um, interest. But the other thing is his pain was progressing. And by having my partner go back in, he did a really careful history and it was changing and evolving into a more classic story for appendicitis. Also be wary of pain that comes and goes where you walk in the room and the kid looks pretty darn good and you're like, boy, I wish I looked that good. And um, make sure you think about interception because that kind of pain can come and go. And the other type of pain that can be really bad is testicular pain or kidney stone pain. And usually we don't miss those because they're writhing. But remember to think of testicular pain even in babies. So crying that's um, uncontrollable um, or the older kids that can't seem to get comfortable, make sure that you consider that diaper area and you know do a very careful physical exam. Dr. Dietrich, what should be included in the physical exam for abdominal pain? Well, you know, when I think of abdominal pain, I think of so many different things. So usually I just start at the top and go to the bottom. So we'll start at, you know, the top. Strep throat can do it. So I always make sure I do a good tonsillar exam, you know, looking for fever, exudate, and lymphadenopathy. And then you do a nor um, you've got a normal abdominal exam, get your rapid strep, that can be the answer. Um, Fever and cough, I've been burnt a couple of times on, you know, kids come in with fever and abdominal pain and not so much the cough, but then when you're in the room, you hear the cough and there's been a couple of kids that have gone to CT scan from the surgeons that have found pneumonias on them. So I always think it's important to do a careful lung exam and to consider pneumonia, particularly in viral illnesses that day three to four, kids spike a secondary fever. Um, if they've got a cough, it makes it a lot easier or if they have tachypnea that's out of proportion, that helps also. Um, and those are two well-known markers of pneumonia. Also make sure you examine the skin. Um, bruises in different stages of healing should make you think of non-accidental trauma. Um, 
it's really important in this day and age. Um, people have gotten more sophisticated, and so the bruises will be on the chest and abdomen under the clothes. So it's really important, and you know, always tell the residents to make sure that they're looking everywhere. Um, it's very unusual for non-ambulatory children and even ambulatory children to get bruises on their abdomen or their back or their chest. So that can be a red flag that will help you get the right diagnosis. Um, if the child's old enough, have them tell you where it hurts the worst and start your abdominal exam away from it. I know numerous people who have gotten into trouble with failing to do a genitalia exam, so it's really important that you take the diaper down. Um, even in kids that are vomiting, so abdominal pain or vomiting, make sure you're looking for hernias, incarcerated hernias, um, testicular torsion, all of those things can lead to abdominal pain or vomiting. Also, in the babies that are under three months of age, if they're really fussy and they're really crying, in addition to doing your usual careful abdominal exam, remember those kids, especially under a month, but even up to three months can have structural abnormalities that have just been first tested when they get outside of mom and have to do all of their physiologic functions on their own. So make sure you even look. I had a, a seven-week-old that came in for constipation. and. Um, you know, I'm doing the genitalia exam, everything's looking normal, very normal looking male. And I looked at the anus and there wasn't an anus, there was just a little hole. And I said to the mom, has it always looked this way? And she said, well, it's my first baby, but that's the way his has always looked. And he had a, um, I can't remember what the surgeon called it, um, but he had a fistula that was coming down, a form of imperforate anus. And he was still passing stool, um, just obviously was very constipated because he didn't have the normal opening. Also, in teenage girls, make sure you consider girls that have sexual stages of development where they should be able to or have started their periods. Make sure you consider imperforate hymen, um, a structural abnormality where um, the girls um, are withholding the blood because they don't have the normal opening. So make sure if they have abdominal pain and you notice that they've got um, hair and breast development that should be consistent with that, just take an external look. Usually it looks like a blue bulge that's coming down um, in between the labia. And I don't need to tell anybody this in emergency medicine, but always think of pregnancy and PID in teenage girls because we can't afford to miss them because they have permanent consequences if there's a delay in diagnosis. And ectopic in teenage girls is a big source of liability. Um, so even if they have any type of breast bud development, make sure you consider just getting a urine pregnancy to be sure um, that you're not missing this because it can be so high risk in teenage girls. To find out more about topics like this one, please go to reliasmedia.com slash podcast where you can listen to other episodes. There, you also can subscribe to our informative publications, such as Pediatric Emergency Medicine Reports, and obtain CME or CE credit. You've mentioned the importance of communicating well with the family on the front end and making sure that you are addressing their concerns and having them involved in the process. On the back end of that, in terms of discharge instructions, what recommendations do you have? And can you talk a little bit about the importance of the discharge process? It's really important. In fact, if you're sending home a child with discharge instructions because you're discharging them, this is the most important part of your conversation. And I like the way you put it. It's the front end and the back end that are both, both of those bookends are critical with kids with abdominal pain. So say that you see a child that's only had a few hours of abdominal pain. You want to be very, very careful because um, those kids may have something that's an evolution, and that's exactly what I tell the family. As I say, right now, it looks like based on the workup we've done, testing we've done, that we 
um, don't have anything here that I'm particularly concerned about. But that doesn't mean that things aren't going to change. That doesn't mean that your child doesn't have something that's an evolution. So here's what I want you to watch for. And I'm very clear with telling them what I want them to watch for. I also try to give all of the kids with um, abdominal pain that I consider to be potentially something in evolution, 12 to 24-hour follow-ups. So I will either have them go back to their pediatrician or welcome them back into the department to make sure that they get that second exam, which can be very, very important in terms of not missing anything. You also want to make sure that you document in your medical record exactly what you told the family. Um, it's important that not only your history and your physical exam is good, but remember this, um, liability for a kid that comes in in full arrest is almost nothing because you recognize what's wrong with them and everybody does everything with a full-hearted, sincere effort that they can. If they come in and they're in septic shock, everyone's there. Everyone's doing things. It's the kids that walk out fine that you have the biggest liability for because they have something to lose and things that are subtle or early can be challenging. So make sure in your discharge instructions you write what you told the family, when you want them to follow up, anything you want them to return for, and always include if they have any concerns, they are welcome to come back to your department. Dr. Dietrich, what are some other conditions that pose significant liability risks for physicians who are working in this field? You know, it, it, there are, Peds Emergency Medicine is a, has a lot of areas of vulnerability. And part of the reason that we're vulnerable is because our interactions are so short and focused. So we don't have that long established relationship that a lot of the pediatricians have in their office, um, which is protective because they know which families call more often. They know which families wait too long sometimes. Um, and so it's really important that we are always vigilant for those things um, because we don't know the families as well. So another condition that is high vulnerability is meningitis. And I used to say it was high vulnerability because it was so serious. Now we are very fortunate because we have excellent vaccines. And so the majority of our kids are really well protected against the most common etiologic agents of meningitis, H-flu, strep pneumo, Neisseria. We have vaccines for those. Um, unfortunately, there are still situations where communities don't vaccinate, don't believe in vaccinations, or a family may make an individual decision not to vaccinate. And in those kids, you still have a vulnerability. And one of the concerns that has come up recently is that there's now delays in the diagnosis of meningitis because we feel so protected. And a lot of the junior faculty, a lot of the residents have never seen a case of meningitis. And so it's really important whenever you hear headache, fever, stiff neck, or if you've got a baby under three months, they have to prove to you they don't have meningitis. And so you need to be extra careful with your history and your physical. It doesn't mean you have to do an LP, but it does mean if a kid makes you nervous when you go in the room, watch them for a while. Keep them for three or four hours. Tell the family, I'm concerned. I see what you're saying. We're going to do this now. I'm going to watch. I'm going to repeat the exam. Come back in. Make sure things are getting better. I've never had a family get mad at me at all for saying, I'm worried this is something that's changing and I want to keep you here for a little bit. And then, you know, you walk in the room and the kid's chasing around the room and has the ophthalmoscope and smacking his sibling on the head. They can go home. And then you can tell them, you know, you're in good shape. This looks good. But still, if anything changes, these are the things that I want you to watch for. I had a resident one night. You'll love this. So 
I come in to take over at 7 a.m. and there's my, you know, one of the, um, it wasn't a resident, it was a junior attending that was on the phone talking to a family. And in emergency medicine, people don't spend a lot of times calling families back. And I said to him as he hung up the phone, I said, what are you doing? And he said, you know, something about the kid bothered me. Something just bothered me. He goes, you know, he's up to date on his vaccinations, but he's only four months of age. And so I was just calling the mom to check on him. And I'm like, how many times have you called her? And he says, well, I'm at two, but she told me that he's a little fussier, so I asked her to bring him back in again. And I said to him, I said, you're such a good clinician, and the child was an early meningitis. And I told him, I said, don't ever doubt those little hairs on the back of your neck. If they go up and you're worried, keep them. I said, you can watch them for a period of time. You don't need to do extra tests unless you think things are shifting, in which case then, you know, go ahead and, and do the appropriate um, testing. Um, the other area is missed injuries are a potential area of liability. Um, make sure that you listen carefully to families. Um, they notice more subtle things, and it's really hard, especially in kids under two, sometimes even get them to cooperate. Um, but listen to what the family says. If they're not moving an arm or they're not putting weight on a leg, missed injury is a pretty high likelihood. And so it's important that we listen to the families because kids usually don't sprain. They usually break, as most of us know. Um, and the other thing is the non-accidental trauma risk. So you've got a six-month-old who's not moving a leg, you know, we're going to be imaging. And then if we have a spiral fracture, obviously non-accidental trauma is what we're going to be concerned about. And also beware of oral trauma in non-ambulatory children. There's been a number of articles that have come out saying that that should also make us suspicious um, for the potential of non-accidental injuries. Today, we've been joined by Dr. Ann Dietrich, pediatric emergency medicine expert and professor at Ohio University Heritage College of Medicine. Dr. Dietrich, thank you for being on the show, and I hope to talk with you again soon. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Relias Media, where we empower healthcare providers to improve patient care and outcomes. To find out more about topics like this one, please go to reliasmedia.com slash podcast, where you can listen to other episodes. There, you also can subscribe to our informative publications, such as trauma reports, and obtain CME or CE credits.